Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Good morning. morning. You guys hear me okay? You can hear me good. Good. Well, um, if I didn't introduce myself, I'm Pastor Jonathan. I'm the associate pastor here, and uh, I'm the guy who gets to uh, preach today uh, while Pastor Dan is away on vacation. Uh, We are beginning a new sermon series today, the Apostles' Creed, I Believe, I Believe. And so we thought, what better way to kick off a new sermon series on the Apostles' Creed than for all of us together uh, to stand up here, I'm going to invite you to stand in a minute, and to recite the Apostles' Creed. So yeah, go ahead, if you're able, stand up. Some of you may say, I've never heard of this thing before, so why don't we, why don't we read it together? Some of you may be thinking, why aren't we saying this more often here? So this summer, we're going to hopefully not upset too many people and make some other people really happy, I guess. Um, <laughs> But here we are. Uh, uh, this is the Apostles' Creed, and, and uh, we'll all lead us. We'll read it all together. Um, this great statement of faith. And I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Uh, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can see a little note there on the word Catholic, which we'll talk more about when we get to that week. If you, you can go ahead and sit down. I believe in God. Uh, today, millions of Christians around the world will gather together and worship this God we believe in. And many of them will profess their faith in him using the very same words or or maybe some variation, you know, like quicken the dead and maybe descended into hell, some fun things like that, which we'll talk about through the summer. Uh, But very similar words. Christians have been doing this for nearly 2,000 years. But why do we say these words and what do they mean? Although not written by the apostles, this creed that bears their name is a statement of belief that best summarizes the core doctrines of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that we find in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. We first see the apostles' creed appearing sometime during the second century. 
the, the creed, or, which comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe, it was often referred to as the rule of faith. And it was a tool used by Christians for two main purposes. It was used for evangelistic purposes, which might interest you, as well as for apologetic purposes or to make a defense of the faith. You see, as the story of a God-man named Jesus Christ who died and rose again began to spread to the ends of the earth, many began converting to Christianity. Now, initially, the converts were largely from a Jewish background, but as the message spreads, those of a non-Jewish background or Gentiles make up the majority of converts to Christianity. Now, prior to converting to Christianity, a Gentile's religion was of a pagan nature, and usually included a, a pantheon of gods. They had many gods. Uh, there was not just one god in, in the, the pagan mindset, but many. Each, and each god served a, a different purpose, and each god made different demands upon the follower. Now, opposed to this, Christians believed in one god. One god who coexists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Apostles' Creed served as an evangelistic instrument to succinctly explain to an inquirer or to a new convert who maybe came from this pagan background, this is what we believe about God, who he is, what he does, what he offers us. And so with the creed or with this statement of faith, the new converts were given a vocabulary of faith, you might say. Not only was it evangelistic, but the creed served as an apologetic. It was used for defending the faith. Uh, it, defending the faith, as Jude puts it, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. By the end of the first century, we already begin to see false teachings creeping into the church. And some of these false teachings were teaching things like there's not one God, but two gods, and one of the gods is better. There's a God of the body and a God of the spirit. And you're trying to get to be worship the God of the Spirit, trying to get out of the body. Uh, to battle against heresies like this, that was Gnosticism, early Christians used the Apostles' Creed as their statement or rule of faith, which clearly lays out the core of what they believed about God. And so here's our plan. Over the summer, we intend to go through this statement of faith with the hope that we here today can see how it is both orthodox, it's scriptural, but how it's also relevant to today. Each week we're going to look at a, a different uh, part of or a different statement of the creed and then use a scripture passage that we will expound that gives the fuller meaning of what this statement might say. Now just to be clear, let me say this. The scriptures alone are our final authority not the creed. The creed is a summary of our faith, and it is very, very, very useful, but it is built upon the scripture. And so just so that we're, there's no confusion or you don't hear us saying there's the Apostles' Creed and the Bible, and they're equal. They're not equal. The Apostles' Creed is a summary of the core doctrines of the faith that sit under the ultimate authority of scripture. Okay, just to be clear about that. Okay, so today we're going to begin looking at the first four words, the first four English words of the creed, I believe in God. And the fundamental question that I want to ask this morning is this. Really, there's two questions. Who is the God of the Bible and why should I believe in him? Who is the God of the Bible and why should I believe him? Who is the God that we say we believe in? 
Now, I've chosen to look at a story, or have lofty goals, a story from 1 Kings 18. We're going to look at 40 verses. Yay. <laughs> it's a good thing that the music is already over, and, you know, it's uh, 9.08. We've got a lot of time in front of us. Um, <laughs> I'm also, I only get to preach like once, once every other month, so I got a lot stored up in here for you. You're welcome. But we're going to look at 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 40. And so before we start talking about this text, let's just read it. It may be a familiar story to some of you. To some of you, you, you might go, this is nuts. Uh, and for others, you may just you know, fall asleep. I don't know. Hopefully not. But here's 1 Kings 18, 1 through 40. Now, this is God's word, and we believe that God's word is, is the only rule for faith and practice, and that it is sufficient, that it is, uh, it, it contains everything we need to know about how to be saved, and who our God is, and what he has done for us in Christ. So, even in the Old Testament, we believe these things. And so, here we come to God's word, 1 Kings 18, Starting in verse 1. There's some page numbers there, by the way. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. A red Bible, and there's a page number. This is in the Old Testament. So if you're trying to find 1 Kings, it's in the, the left side of the Bible. Uh, if, you, if you drop your Bible open in the middle, you might hit like Psalms or Proverbs. You want to go left and keep going until you get, it should be in the first third here. 1 Kings, not 2 Kings. It's after 2 Samuel. Uh, and there's page numbers. Okay. 1 Kings 18, verse 1. And after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through, all, uh, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive, and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And Elijah answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord that's Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? 
how I hid a hundred men of the Lord, prophets by fifties, in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17. Nearly halfway there. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Literally, it was two words in Hebrew. They just said, well said. That's all they said. Okay. Basically, okay. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. It's about three to six, ga six gallons. And it probably refers to the depth. OK? 
Okay, so it's a deep trench. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord remains forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Oh, great God, Yahweh, Lord of hosts, there is much here. Lord, we ask that you would give us clarity about who you are. Lord, I pray that for those who maybe skeptical about this God that we believe in, that you would grant them a mind to understand and ears to hear. For those of us who may be struggling with the gods of this world, all of us really, Lord, grant us a clearer and, and more profound understanding of your greatness and your wonder Lord, I ask above all that you would be glorified as we enter into this daunting task of trying to understand a God whose ways are unsearchable, whose wisdom is beyond measure. We love you and we praise you for your spirit that helps us and illuminates these things for us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This past Thursday, there was a big basketball game. I don't know if any of you watched it. Bucks, but how many Bucks fans do we have? Maybe not anymore after yesterday, right? So after Thursday's game, Kawhi Leonard scored 35 points, and it was said on Twitter and many other places, he's a god. Kawhi Leonard, he's a god. There's a question that I want to ask this morning as before we even get into trying to understand who the God of the Bible is, what is a God? 
Merriam-Webster Dictionary says uh, a God is a person or thing of supreme value. So that we could have another option. Oxford Dictionary says a God is a superhuman being or spirit worshipped as having power over nature or human fortunes, a deity. Okay. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Pastor Tim Keller defines a God as this. Anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Let me say that again. A God is anything so central and so essential, so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Friends, ask yourself, what is so central and essential in your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living? In 1 Kings 18, we we find a community that has lost many central and essential things. We find a community who's unsure of who their God is, a community who's facing incredible challenges and they're wavering in their belief. It hasn't rained, hasn't even even been dew on the ground in three years. And because of this, they're suffering the effects of a severe famine. On top of that, for the last 60 years, their country and homeland was in total shambles. There was a conspiracy that divided the country uh, that led to great bloodshed and corruption. And then they had been ruled by one bad leader after another, each worse than the one before. And these unjust leaders were only loyal to themselves. Oftentimes they they killed their own family members so that they could gain more power. And as a result, we find a people, this community, who are confused about what's going on around them. They're unsure of who to trust, what to believe. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they're looking for help. And so they're tempted to believe whatever or whoever might offer them some form of relief or some sense of hope, even those things that might be ultimately counterfeit or false. We're not that unlike them. In the same way, when we face a multitude of challenges, we are tempted to believe anything that might offer satisfaction and hope. We're tempted to follow anything that might offer us a sense of relief or respite from our daily troubles. The question that we have to ask this morning fundamentally is this. When we are in that position, who are we going to believe and follow? The story in Exodus 18 opens with these words in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. Right away, we're thrown into the middle of something that we have no idea what's going on, unless you've been reading through 1 Kings up to this point. Anybody? I'm just curious. Anyone reading 1 Kings right now? Okay. Oh, yes. Yes, 1 Kings. Okay, you have read 1 Kings. Good. Right away, we're introduced to three characters, and we find ourselves needing to, to back up a little bit. So let's back up just a step, okay? Just let's take a step back. So we see Elijah. 
Elijah is a prophet called by the Lord. In the Bible, prophets were messengers of God, messengers called by the Lord, and they were given a specific message to take to a particular people, okay? That's, they're messengers sent by God, basic understanding. And this is Elijah. We see that it has been many days since the last time the Lord had spoken to Elijah. In fact, it had been three years. So there's been a little bit of a dry spell of God speaking to his prophet Elijah. Not only a famine of uh, food and a drought, but also God hadn't spoken. Now, who is the Lord? We see right away the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Well, this, this raises the question, well, who is the Lord? Now, look in your Bibles for a second, and do you guys have the, the word Lord in all capital letters or like small capital letters? Yes, I see some heads nodding. Many of you probably will. Now, there's a reason for this. This, this is a name that is different from when you might see later in this, this text, this like small letter case uh, L, uh, small case L-O-R-D, or even capital L, small O-R-D. This is a different word. The use of all capitals, capital letters here is, is, is given to us to indicate something, that this is the divine name of God that's being used. In fact, in the Hebrew, there are four consonants that they use, W-H, uh, Y-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H. Uh, and it's the same consonants that we find in the verb to be or to exist. You may remember when, when Moses is standing at the, the, the bush, the, the burning bush, and he says, who shall I say is sending me to Pharaoh? And the bush says, tell them I am to be or Yahweh has sent you. I am who I am. That, that's, that's where this comes from. And anytime we find this, these four were, these four capital letters, L-O-R-D, it's referring to the personal divine name of God, the God of the Bible. And it expresses something essential about the attributes and character of God. So for the rest of this uh, message, I'm going to be referring to the, the word, the, the phrase, the Lord as Yahweh, just so we can be clear, okay? Because that is his name. What did Elijah believe about Yahweh? Well, Elijah believed Yahweh is a personal, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who created and sustains all things. And that he is the only true and living God. That's what Elijah believed about Yahweh. That Yahweh is the only true and living God and that he's the one who created and made everything and sustains everything. And that he made a covenant with his people. So it makes sense that Elijah is going to do pretty much anything Yahweh tells him to do. And in this case, Yahweh tells Elijah, go find Ahab. Now, who's Ahab? Ahab's an interesting guy. <laughs> oh, Ahab. The first time we meet Ahab is two chapters earlier in 1 Kings 16. Ahab uh, was a king. He came to power in the northern kingdom. So the kingdom in 930 BC divided between north and south. So Israel, which was once 12 tribes uh, in the land of Judah, you know, there, the promised land, they went through some trouble. They had, you know, Saul, then David, then Solomon. And after Solomon, there was an uprising of his sons. And now there's conspiracy, bloodshed, and the kingdoms divide in 930 BC. Ahab is the seventh king to come to power in the northern kingdom, which is also called Israel. This, I know this gets confusing, doesn't it? The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. 
The northern kingdom represents 10 tribes. The southern kingdom represents two. 1 Kings 16 says this about Ahab. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Now just keep in mind, Omri uh, came to power, but there was another guy who they were fighting for power, and seven days went by, and then Omri took, took control. So there's, this is just bloodshed, uh, war, conspiracy, terrible stuff happening. So Ahab comes to this throne. He's in the long line of some great guys before him. And we are told in verse 30, 1 Kings 16, 30, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. A little later in the same chapter, it says he erected an altar for Baal. This is in honor of his wife, Jezebel, who was a, who was a devout Baal worshiper. And he built, the house, uh, he built an altar for Baal in the house of Baal in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. So he also made this god, this tower god thing. And listen to this, 1 Kings 16.33. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. More to provoke Yahweh. And so as a consequence for this, Yahweh sends a drought. Elijah is the first one to predict this drought. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So now we fast forward to 1 Kings 18. It's been three years. There's no rain. And Yahweh promises to send rain upon the earth. But before he does it, before he's going to send the rain coming down, he wants Elijah to do something. I want you to go show yourself to Ahab. And so Elijah says, okay. Now ask yourself this question, why go through all this? Why not send the rain? Yahweh could. He's done it before. Why not send the rain? Why have Elijah go and find Ahab and then, and then go into some things that we're going to talk about here? Why do that? Well, let's, let's see. It seems as though Yahweh wants to make a point about something. Now notice with me this observation that gets made at the end of verse 2. It's, it, we're told that there was severe famine in Samaria. There was severe famine. Uh, this is, would be an extreme scarcity of food. Grass isn't growing, crops aren't growing, the animals are dying, there's, there's no food. And you notice how Ahab responds to the famine in verses 3 to 6. He goes... Uh, to find Obadiah, who's over his household, and he basically says, hey, we need to save the animals. Let's go look for grass. Let's go look for something to feed the animals because they're dying. The animals represented part of their economy. Uh, the animals represented their livelihood. So we got to save the animals. So they go out and looking. Obadiah goes in one direction. Ahab goes in another. Now notice this parentheses that's thrown in there. See, on, on, that, on its own, you, you might read that and go, okay, that, I mean, sounds like a king doing what a king should do. He's trying to save his economy. But there's this parenthesis that's thrown in there about, eight, about Obadiah, and it's very interesting. It's verses 3 and 4, and it reads this. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. When Jezebel, and when Jezebel, that's the wife of Ahab, cut off the prophets of the Lord, that means she was killing them. That, that's another way of saying that. When she was killing the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah, who works for Ahab, 
he's a civil servant, took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave. And then what's he doing during this drought and severe famine? He's somehow scrounging up food and water and taking them to the prophets of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice a contrast that, that, that I don't think the, the, the scripture wants us to miss here. Notice what Ahab is concerned about and what Obadiah is concerned about. Ahab saving animals, Obadiah saving people. Ahab is trying to save an economy. Obadiah is trying to save a, 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 a nation's leaders, spiritual leaders. So you combine Ahab's misguided priorities. He's already established these altars of, uh, to the god Baal and the lack of any prophets. And what do you have? I think that, friends, we are seeing that this is a famine that goes beyond just a physical famine. Is it possible that this, the, the severe famine in the, the land was a, a spiritual famine as well? And in the midst of this famine, there's no food, there's no spiritual leadership. Where are the people to go? Well, Ahab has put up this option for them to the god Baal. Now, you might sit here and go, well, gosh, why would they do that? But just to give them a little bit more credit, let's consider for a moment what, what might be drawing them to Baal worship. Let's talk about Baal worship for a second, okay? Who was Baal? Now, it was believed that Baal was the storm and fertility God, the God who bestowed upon man and soil the blessings of fruitfulness. Now, according to Baal worshipers, Baal sent forth lightning, fire, and rain. He gave grain, oil, and wine. He could revive the dead, heal the sick, and grant the blessings of offspring. Not only this, as if that wasn't already great enough, Baal allowed you to worship with all of your sensuality, throw off all regard for any moral, uh, moral ethic when it comes to sexuality because Baal said, hey, that's fine. We have cult prostitutes. You don't, you're not unhappy with your wife? That's fine. Come down to the temple. We'll offer you something. So you think for a moment, put yourself in their shoes. They have no food. They have no leadership. They haven't heard from Yahweh in three years. And they're being told, well, worship this God. He's going to give you what you want. The question may not be why would they worship Baal, but why wouldn't they? It certainly seemed to appeal to their current need. This gets back to an earlier question I asked. Why didn't Yahweh just send the rain right away? Why have Elijah go show himself to Ahab? Is it possible that if Yahweh had merely sent the rain without a word about it, the people would have thought it was Baal? Is it possible that they maybe for a moment would have said, oh, did, is this from Yahweh, our God? I don't know. There's this Baal guy that everyone keeps talking about that offers all these great things too. They may, they may have just jumped right past their own tradition, their own heritage, their own thinking. Straight to the modern thinking of the day, which was Baal. So it seems that Yahweh needs to prove something once and for all. First way he does this is he sends two servants of the Lord. You see this in verses 17, or excuse me, 7 through 19. You see Obadiah, he's out looking for grass for Ahab. 
And there's this great interaction. He meets Elijah. And there's this, this, I mean, it's fantastic, this interaction that we see here. <laughs> Obadiah recognizes Elijah. He, he probably hasn't seen him for years. So it's kind of amazing that he recognized him. But he recognized him and it says he falls down on his face and he says, is it you, my Lord Elijah? And then Elijah simply says, yep. Now I want you to go find Ahab and tell him, here I am. Now Obadiah, in effect, responds and says, are you crazy? He's going to kill me. And I'm going to summarize these, these five verses for us for the sake of time. But basically his reasoning goes like this. Okay, so you want me to go to Ahab and tell him that you're here. And I'm going to go do this. But basically, when I do this, you're going to disappear. The Spirit of God's going to take you somewhere. Now, since the drought began, Ahab's been looking everywhere for you because you're the one who told him we're going to have a drought. And it's only by your word that we're not going to have a drought. So he's been looking everywhere. He's been searching kingdoms. He's been searching nations. And you think he's going to take it lightly when I go and say, hey, look, here's Elijah. But then Elijah, you know, you get spirited. He says, the spirit of the Lord's going to take you away. Like he's this prophetic no-show. See, Obadiah fears Yahweh greatly, but he still wants to live. He even recognizes Elijah as the true prophet of Yahweh, and yet he still has this practical sense. I want to do what's right, but come on. I mean, this is nuts. See, it might, for, be, from our perspective, be easy to pick on Obadiah. Come on, Obadiah. I mean, he's hesitant. He's cautious. He's fearful. Elijah is bold. He's confrontational. He's intrusive. For the amount of time that gets spent on this part of the, the text, I do believe it's important for us to notice that there are differences in their personalities, and I think there's strengths and weaknesses in both their personalities. And the point that I want to make from all of this is simply to say this. God uses different kinds of people. It's not just one prophet, bold guy out there who he calls to be his instrument of grace. He uses all kinds of people. And we can learn from one another. You know, we're one body, many parts. Even still, though, these men differ in their personalities, and Obadiah could learn from Elijah, and Elijah probably could learn a little bit from Obadiah too, maybe tone it down just a bit. They both feared Yahweh. And Elijah, just to reassure cautious and fearful Obadiah, says in verse 15, as the Lord of hosts live, lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So he says, don't worry about that. I'm going to show up. It's going to happen. So Obadiah goes and he meets Ahab. And he tells him, and Ahab goes and meets Elijah. Finally, at last, we get to see why Yahweh wants Elijah to show himself to Ahab. Before he's going to send this rain. Now, before the rain comes, Elijah has three things he's got to do. There's three parts to setting the stage, you might say, before Yahweh's going to send the rain. And it's all part of this, uh, him showing himself to Ahab. And this first step is this. Gather all the people and all the prophets at Mount Carmel. Gather them together. And so they meet. Verse 17, don't you love it? You know, Ahab, hey, you're the troubler. Elijah, no, actually, you're the troubler. A little name calling going on. For whatever reason, when Elijah asks Ahab to gather all the, the prophets, 
Ahab says yes. By God's providence, Ahab says, okay, probably because he thought, well, I'm going to see where this goes, and then we're just going to kill Elijah. I'm going to have 850 guys with me to do it, so what do we have to worry about, right? So Ahab gathers all the people of Israel and all the prophets, 450 of Baal and Asherah, and they gather where? At Mount Carmel. Now, this is really fun. I have a picture here of Mount Carmel taken last month by some friends. Oh, where is it? There it is. That's Mount Carmel. Isn't that kind of cool? Mount, there's one more, I think. I think there's a third one, too, which actually is a statue of uh, Elijah standing over a prophet of Baal with a sword. Now, what, what was Mount Carmel? Maybe go back to one of those early ones, and I'm going to talk about Mount Carmel for a minute. Mount Carmel, uh, so Mount Carmel, uh, Carmel juts out into the Mediterranean near modern Haifa, and it's a range of limestone hills that extend southeast for some 11 miles, okay? If you're in the Sea of Galilee, you go about 25 miles west toward the Mediterranean Sea, and you'll get to, you'll get to Carmel. That's about where it's at. Now, what's so significant about Mount Carmel? Why gather everyone at Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel was known as the Mountain of Baal. One commentator actually said you could, you could call it Baal's Bluff. This was Baal's home turf, so to speak. Okay? And so, step one, gather all the people and all the prophets at Mount Carmel. Step two, Elijah is going to challenge the people. Verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people. He could just, I mean, see him coming out in the fields there. I mean, you could just kind of think about it. They're, they're coming out, they're coming up. Elijah's up on the mountain with the prophets. The people are gathering around. Elijah says to the people, verse 21, how long will you go on limping uh, or wavering is another translation. Limping between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not say a word. They don't know who God is. Step three. Elijah challenged them. So step three, fine, let's have a contest. Verse 22, Elijah says to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men and kind of implied is, and there's also 400 prophets of Asherah here too. So there's one guy versus 850. Let's have bulls. And so he goes through. Let's have bulls. Let's set up altars. Let's set the bulls. Let's sacrifice them. Put them on the altars. And we're not going to set them on fire. Instead, we're going to call on our God. And whoever's God answers by fire, he is God. And so the people say, okay. Two words in Hebrew. It says four words in English, but it, they just said, okay, or well said. So the answer are the question on everyone's mind right now. All the people are standing there. They're looking up. They're, they're, they're about to see something happen. And they're going, who is the real God? And they don't know. So Elijah, verse 25, he directs the prophets of Baal. He says, go ahead, get to work. Set it up. So they do. They set up the altar cut up the bull, they put it on the altar, and they begin crying out, Oh, Baal, answer us for three hours. Oh, Baal, answer us. 
Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Three hours of this. I just did it for 10 seconds. How many of you were annoyed? <laughs> oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they, notice the word, same word that Elijah used to describe the Israelites limping between gods. They limped around the altar they had made. So now Elijah has, I don't think he's having fun. We, the, the English translation says at noon Elijah mocked them. And I think he's, he's actually calling to mind something that they believed about Baal. They believed that there are times when their God could go to sleep or he could go out to lunch. They really believed that. Or maybe he was on a journey and they needed to revive him back. Or, or maybe, you know, he was doing something else. And so him saying in verse 27, cry aloud for he's a God. Maybe he's musing or maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. He wasn't saying this simply just to kind of make fun of them. They really believed that Baal could do these things. They thought they had to revive him and bring him back because he wasn't responding. He's mocking their perception that Baal is out to lunch. And so what do they do? They begin crying aloud and cutting themselves. Now, this is part of their practice, cutting themselves with swords and lances and, and bloods gushing out. And as midday passed, they raved on. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. At this point, the reality that the people who are standing looking on, oh, it's fine, we don't have to go to the picture. They're looking on, they're saying, okay, Baal is either out to lunch, he's dead, which is also a possibility. Their gods died. Or he doesn't exist. But is Elijah's God, Yahweh, going to do any better? And so we notice what Elijah does. First thing is, because the altar had been destroyed because of all this stuff going on with them, he repairs the altar. In fact, first, I, I, I don't want to overlook this in verse 30. He actually says to the people, come near to me, and they come near. So he actually calls them, there's a, there's a, they're making a connection here. And then he begins repairing the altar, reestablishing it. He sets up 12 stones. Notice it's not 10 stones for the northern kingdom, but 12 stones because the, the, the people of God are one people, one according to each tribe, one representing all of God's people, not just the northern part, but all of God's people are represented. He built the altar according to the name of the Lord, according to his character. He dedicated to him. He said, this is for Yahweh. He digs this trench around it that can hold three to six gallons Maybe more because if it's deep, if it's, if it's two sayas deep, then it's actually going to hold a whole lot more. And then he says three times, fill up four jars. Now you might be going, oh, wait, I thought there was drought. But they were right by the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. They could just run down to the sea, get some water and come back. Or the brook Kishon, even if it was dried up, they got the Mediterranean. So there's water. Four or three times he has them fill up four jars. Drench it. Do it again. Drench it. Do it again. Drench it. He wants to make a point, right? How can fire, how can wet stuff be lit on? Anyone ever tried to light a fire with wet wood? Yeah, Abby's, yeah, I have. How did, how did it work out for you? 
Didn't work, did it? Yeah. Doesn't work. You can't light a fire with wet wood. You can't. Even if you put wood that's green in a fire, it stinks and it, it smokes and it, oh, it's terrible. Elijah then prays. Notice again this words, he came near to the people. And he says, oh Lord, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So the God of these people. This calls back to mind the covenants God made with Abraham, the covenant God made with Israel, the covenant he made with Moses, uh, in, in, in the covenant that God made to bring the people in and establish a kingdom. Oh, Yahweh, the covenant God, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I've done all these things because you told me to. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. Now just imagine. He says this prayer. It probably took him all of a minute. Not hours and hours and hours. And the people are watching. Waiting. What's going to happen? Is Yahweh the real God? Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. Let's pause for a moment here. What is this telling us about the God Yahweh? One, he's not bound by geography. They're on Baal's turf here. He doesn't care because it's his world. He's not hindered by obstacles. This is a very, very, very wet altar. He's not bound by obstacles. He's not hindered by this. He's not a God who can be manipulated or conjured up by certain activity or rituals. He is a God who is living and active. He's not out to lunch. He is a God who hears the simple prayers of even just one person. Without ritual, without pomp and circumstance. The cry of a man's heart. He is a God who graciously answers prayer and is merciful to turn the hearts of these rebellious people who don't even remember that he's their God or don't want to acknowledge him as their God or follow him or trust him. He's merciful to do this, to turn their hearts back to himself. Who is the real God? From this, we see that the God named Yahweh is the only true God because he's the only God who answers by fire. He speaks he answers. He pays attention. You see, there's something else that sets Yahweh apart from the god Baal or any other thing of this world that we might idolize. You'll notice, as I pointed out, there were four times where this phrase or the variation of this phrase, to come near, was drawn out. Elijah came near to the people. He said, come near to me, people. And when he prayed, he came near and then he cried out, See, I believe all this is pointing to the reality that the God of Israel, Yahweh, not only speaks, he not only answers, he not only pays attention to his people, he's the only God who comes near to his people. 
In fact, we're told in John 1.14 that Yahweh, this same God, the Lord of hosts, took on flesh and dwelt among his people, revealing to us the glory of God full of grace and truth. You see, friends, Yahweh himself came to us in the person of Jesus Christ to seek and to save the lost, to bind up the brokenhearted, to turn hearts back to himself, And then to offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice on the altar for sin and rebellion. And it is only this God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, who offers total satisfaction, who offers total rest, who offers us freedom from the penalty and power and presence of sin. See, this is what makes him stand out from every other counterfeit God or idol or thing you might turn to to make you happy. Every other God in this world demands everything from you, but delivers nothing but disappointment. Yahweh, Jesus Christ, on the other hand, perfectly fulfills the demands of God and freely offers you everything. Yahweh, Jesus Christ, only makes one demand of you. He says, follow me. It's a big demand. It's costly. But he says, follow me, and I, in exchange, give you everything. I want to come at it from one other perspective. We're not too late. Think for a moment about the, the reality of what happens when we choose to follow the Baals or the counterfeit gods, the idols of our day and age. Now, you may be going, I don't worship a Baal. Come on, like, I worship God. I believe in God. I don't, I don't have bales in my life. Will you remember how I first defined a God? A God is anything so central or essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Tim Keller actually goes on and says, an idol is anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. So ask yourself the question again, what are the gods in my life? What are the things that I am seeking to give me what only God can give? What are the things that are central and essential in my life that were they taken from me, I would be devastated? Are they your children? Your spouse? Maybe it's your hope for a spouse? Is it an education? Is it a job? Is it a car? Is it a relationship? Is it the Packers? Is it the Bucks? What happens when you lose that great job, when you lose that house, that scholarship? What happens when you gain a few extra pounds and you look in the mirror and you go, who is this person? I can't live with myself. Or maybe your hair turns a color you don't like. What happens when your team loses, when your relationship fails? What happens when someone you love dies? If you've staked your life if you're building your life on these things, even if you're saying, yeah, I believe in God, but man, this is so important to me that if it's taken from me, I don't know how I could live. Then friends, you are worshiping a Baal. And I'm guilty of this. But what happens when your Baal goes out to lunch? And they always do. You'll be met with silence. No voice. No answer. And you'll be limping around without hope. Because, friends, 
The bales of our life, the counterfeit gods of this world cannot speak, they cannot answer, they cannot pay attention to you, they only will disappoint you. But there is a God who speaks, a God who answers, a God who pays attention to your every need, and his name is Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how will you respond knowing this truth? There's two choices we really have, and you see these choices at the end of the passage. You can fall on your face and profess and confess, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Or you can find that at the last day, just like these prophets, you will be condemned. And they were just, Elijah, just, just as a side note, we, we read the end of this passage and we go, wow, that was kind of a downer. Elijah is just, they're, they're a theocracy, so they, 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 they're, they're, they're existing according to the law of God. And Elijah was just carrying out the capital punishment law from Deuteronomy 13. That's why he had them all killed. It was just sort of like, well, we know who the God is. Now we got to take care of business because this is what the Bible says to do. But the point is this. In light of the fact that Yahweh is God, we have two choices. We can confess him and find ourselves no longer condemned or we can remain in our condemnation at the last day, face the condemnation, the wrath and the curse of God that we justly deserve. So friends, how will you respond today to the reality that Yahweh Jesus Christ is the only true and living God? Will you believe in him? Will you follow him? Will you throw down the idols? I hope so. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. We thank you that in your kindness and grace that you pay attention to us, you speak to us, and you even came near to us in Christ. And for this we cry out, Yahweh is the Lord. Yahweh is the Lord. Help us, Lord, as we mind the, the idol factories that are our hearts and we seek to get rid of those things that we're holding on to or at least to put those things that we're holding on to in their proper position, Lord, that they are not more important than you. Help us to do that in your grace. We thank you that you have not left us limping around but that you came and gave of yourself so that our limping, broken bodies might be healed and restored. You yourself were made limp so that we could have life, and we thank you for this. We pray these things for your sake, O oh God. We believe, help us in our unbelief, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.